Hello and welcome back to The Pisky Trap, a series where we explore the folklore, history and legends from across Devon and Cornwall. For as long as I can remember, I've always been fascinated by the sea. Like many people, I've always enjoyed trips down to the beach or swimming in the sea, or even just sitting and and watching the waves rolling in. For me, there's something quite soothing and quite hypnotic about that. Equally, I've always been fascinated by the idea of what creatures might live in the sea. I've spoken to a lot of people over the years who have this genuine fear of swimming in open water, simply because they don't like this idea of not knowing what might be lurking beneath the waves. I suppose it taps into that part of our brain that naturally fears the unknown. There have always been tales of sea creatures, from the Scylla and Charybdis and the Sirens in Greek mythology through to accounts by explorers and sailors over the centuries describing these incredible encounters with huge sea serpents or with giant squid that could seize a ship whole and drag it down to the depths. And then there are tales of creatures such as mermaids. According to the Royal Museum in Greenwich, and I quote, Stories of mermaids have existed for thousands of years and span cultures from across the world, from coastal settlements in Ireland to the landlocked Karoo Desert in South Africa. The word mermaid itself is a combination of the old word mer or mer, in French meaning the sea, and the word maid meaning a young woman. Now there's slight variations in artwork across different cultures, but generally they're depicted as a woman who has, instead of legs, the tail of a fish. In some stories and in some cultures, they represent life and fertility, but they can also symbolise the destructive nature of the sea. They can be an omen, or they can lure sailors and ships to their doom. In Cornwall, there are a range of different stories involving mermaids, usually surrounding someone's encounter with a mermaid, with varying results. Sometimes they anger the mermaid and there might be a curse involved. Or they form some kind of a relationship with that person. In this episode, we're going to look at a few different examples, but I really want to explore and dive a little bit deeper into two particular stories. The first is a very famous one called The Mermaid of Zena, which comes from West Cornwall. And even to this day, if you were to Google The Mermaid of Zena, you'll end up with a range of different results from different websites and countless different articles exploring the story itself and retelling it in its different variations, but also exploring the folklore around it. The other story is perhaps less famous, but there are still books and songs written about it, and that's called Looty and the Mermaid and that comes from down near the lizard. This is going to be something of a departure from a lot of the often historically based material that we've looked at in previous episodes, some of which have dealt with real events and real individuals, as we now move into the realm of magic and myth. 
So I've enlisted the help of storyteller, author and musician Mike O'Connor and you're going to hear extracts from a Zoom conversation we had a few weeks back chatting about mermaids. So in this episode I wanted to dive a little bit deeper into the world of mermaids in Cornwall. Where do these stories come from and what meaning can we take from them? So allow me to present our next episode, Cornish Mermaids. Within easy memory, many parts of the western coast were said to be frequented by mermaids. William Bottrell, writing in the early 1870s, opens one of his chapters with these words. His work was called Traditions and Hearthside Stories from West Cornwall. And we think it was one of the first instances where some of these old stories and folk tales were first written down. Traditionally, many of the old stories, which often involve tales of giants, piskies, mermaids, ghosts, witches, and many more, seem to have been passed down as part of an oral tradition, and were told by storytellers known as drolltellers. Bottrell, in the introduction to his first edition in 1870, talks about life in the far west of Cornwall, particularly in the 18th and early part of the 19th centuries, and just how secluded it was. He talks about communities who, and I quote, knew next to nothing of occurrences beyond their immediate neighbourhood. He then goes on to say, their chief resource for passing the eventide and other times of rest was the relation of traditional stories, or, as they say, drawling away the time, in public house or chimney corner. Many old legends have thus been handed down and kept alive. End quote. No doubt among these traditional tales were many stories involving mermaids. And it makes sense. I mean, Cornwall is pretty much surrounded by water. To the north and to the west and to the south, you've got the Atlantic and then you've got the English Channel. And then over to the east, you've got the River Tamar, which separates Cornwall from Devon. So it's little surprise that there are lots of stories involving sea creatures, and mermaids in particular. For instance, up on the north coast, there's the story of the Doom Bar, which is a sandbar at the mouth of the Camel Estuary, said to be the result of a mermaid's curse upon a local sailor. There are variations of the story, but commonly the young man asks for the mermaid's hand in marriage, and when she refuses him, he shoots at her. In revenge, she raises a curse, and that night there's a terrible storm, which brings with it a bar of sand that became known as the Doom Bar. Over the centuries, there have been hundreds of ships lost that have capsized or been wrecked 
as a direct result of the Doom Bar. So in a sense, you might say that the mermaid's curse continues. So here we have, obviously, a very condensed version of a mermaid story that explains the origins of this sandbar. And some people refer to this as geo-mythology, a way of explaining or accounting for things in the landscape around us. There's a very similar story which comes from the village of Seaton in southeast Cornwall. It's all centred around a local man named Paul Pengelly, who again incurs the wrath of a mermaid. Paul is out fishing for pilchards one day, when a beautiful mermaid suddenly surfaces alongside his boat, and invites him to come and swim with her. Despite being very tempted, he knows he has a job to do, so he carries on and signals for the nets to form to catch a shoal of pilchards. Unfortunately, the mermaid gets tangled and caught up in the nets, and, quite understandably, she's furious. Paul eventually manages to free her from the nets and release her back into the sea, but enraged, the mermaid lays a curse upon Paul Pengelly and all of Seaton. She conjures up a huge sandstorm that engulfs the harbour and the buildings and buries the port of Seaton forever. I've borrowed heavily here from the version of the tale in Anna Chalton's brilliant book, Cornish Folk Tales of Place, which I highly recommend. And at the end of the story, she writes, and I quote, The mermaid continues to shift the sand. The river rarely meets the sea in the same place. And recently the beach cafe was almost destroyed by a storm and covered in sands. End quote. Here again, we have this idea that the mermaid's curse persists to this day and continues to have an impact on the landscape. We have a couple of examples there of the way in which mermaid folklore blends into local history and the surrounding landscape. And in both these tales, we have the depiction of what I suppose you might call the vengeful or wrathful mermaid, along with the perils of offending or mistreating these creatures of the sea. I want to take us much further west now, to a different story and one that offers us a very different picture of the mermaid. The little village of Zena sits in West Cornwall, pretty much in the middle between St Ives to the east and St Just over to the west. It's a place that I've always loved to visit, and whenever I do go, I always take a trip to the church there, which is named after St Senera, which is where we get the name Zena. The church is still popular with visitors, perhaps because of the folklore surrounding the village itself, but largely because of a carving crafted into the side of a chair, often referred to as the mermaid chair. It seems that this carving once formed part of an ornate bench end and was at some point adapted to make this chair. It offers us this fantastic depiction of a mermaid, who is holding in one hand a comb, and in the other what appears to be a mirror. If you did a quick search for it, I'm sure you could find images of it, but I highly recommend going to see it for yourself if you get chance. This carving has fascinated people for a long time, and has no doubt inspired many writers and creatives, largely, I think, because of the famous tale called The Mermaid of Zena 
And it sparked a debate over the years over which came first. Was the ancient carving the inspiration for the story? Or is the story itself much older? And the carving was created in remembrance or perhaps celebration of the story. Or does the carving have nothing to do with the legend and represents something altogether different? As to the story of the Mermaid of Zena, I'm choosing here to tell the story in my own way, but borrowing heavily from William Bottrell's version of the tale, simply because he seems to have been the first person to write it down and publish it in 1873, drawing upon these older oral traditions. One day, a very beautiful and elegantly dressed woman attended the service at Zena Church. She was said to have visited over at Morva as well. Her visits to church were by no means regular, and often there were long periods of time when no one saw her. But every time she came, the locals were enchanted by her beauty and by her sweet singing voice. Over time, and in the many years when they'd see her, Folk began to wonder why she never seemed to age. She was always so young and fair. No one knew where she came from or where she disappeared to. It soon came to pass that a local man caught the eye of this mysterious young woman. He was a handsome young fellow named Mathy Truella and was known to be the best singer in the parish. One day, Mathy left the village following the young woman and he never returned. After that, the young woman was not seen at Zena Church again, and no one knew what had become of them. One Sunday morning, a ship cast anchor about a mile off Pendower Cove, and soon after, a beautiful mermaid with golden hair and bright green eyes rose out of the water, came alongside, and hailed to the captain. She told him that she was just returning from church, and asked if he might trip his anchor for a moment, as the fluke of it was resting on the floor of her home, and she was anxious to get back to her children. The superstitious sailors, anxious not to anger the mermaid, of course did as she asked, and quickly set sail. When the folk of Zena learned that there was a mermaid dwelling off Pandower, and once they had heard the captain's description of her as he relayed his story, all concluded that it was this beautiful lady of the sea who had visited their church, and who had taken Mathy Truella to live with her in her watery home. William Bottrell concludes his version of the story by saying, and I quote, To commemorate these somewhat unusual events, they had the figurine she bore when in her ocean home, carved in holy oak, which may still be seen, end quote. As I said, there are slight variations to the tale, but all follow this basic storyline of a mysterious and beautiful young woman who meets Mathy Truella, and the two of them disappear to go and live in the ocean. I've come across versions in which Mathy is also described as having been a bell ringer at Zena Church, and he's reportedly so good at it that there's a unique quality to his playing. So much so that occasionally 
folk would hear the sound of church bells ringing beneath the waves, played in exactly the same way. And this is how they knew that Mathy now dwelled in the sea with his mermaid wife. Now, that may seem slightly absurd, but stories of old church bells ringing beneath the waves are very much part of an old storytelling tradition that certainly I grew up with and are linked with tales surrounding the lost land of Leoness. Though that's a whole different story I'll likely delve into in another episode. So what's going on here in this story of the mermaid of Zena? It clearly still holds a fascination for many people, but what are its potential origins? What are we meant to interpret from it? Is there a meaning behind it? And also, what's the significance behind this ancient carving in the church? A few weeks back, I had a chat with Mike O'Connor, author of a fantastic book called Cornish Folk Tales, which follows the journey of a travelling droll teller, moving around Cornwall, telling these traditional stories in the various places associated with the tales. I asked Mike his thoughts about the Mermaid of Zena and also about the carving in the church. Uh, the Mermaid of Zena perhaps uh, is in, uh, an inheritor of a tradition that really sprung up in the 19th century when sailors travelled the world over and um, they uh, came home with tales of mermaids that would uh, seduce sailors onto rocks, uh, which immediately, of course, makes you think of uh, the Odyssey uh, and Odysseus being uh, uh, having to negotiate his way past the sirens, uh, which he did successfully, uh, but that's another story. And in The Mermaid of Zena, it's interesting to track different versions, but The Mermaid of Zena is in most versions that you come across a benign creature, a friendly creature. So uh, when eventually uh, she and uh, young Mathy, who is uh, her lover, when they disappear um, and are eventually discovered uh, living in a house under the sea uh, somewhere near St Ives Bay, everyone's very happy for them because it's a, a clearly a, a, a positive relationship. And that gives us the final clue as to what this story is about. Um, imagine that your young son goes out in his fishing boat one day and you never see him again. The boat's capsized, uh, there might be a bit of wreckage. How do you explain that to his children? You'd feel a lot happier if you could say he has a new lover in the sea, underground, or under, under, under the waves. Uh, and so in a, in a way, it's it's a part of a coping strategy, and I think that there. I mean, uh, the uh, Scottish uh, traveller Duncan Williamson uh, held very firmly that that was the uh, reason that so many Selkie stories are the way that they are, and I think that mermaid tales, um, those that this particular type of mermaid tale anyway, uh, ha has that sort of an origin in it. Does it predate the? Um, the carving. Um, 
I wouldn't be surprised if it predated the carving. I mean, there are lots of modern details fitted onto that story now, the way that you read it in books, and the Mabian is seen walking up the hill past the eagle's nest and heading in the direction of St. Ives. And those places probably didn't exist when the story was first told. Um, and interestingly, there is a, it's either another version or another mermaid story from Morva just down the road, uh, which is uh, closely related to the Mermaid of Zena story. And I wonder if it start, the tale started off in Morva and crept up the road. Um, I don't know. I don't think anyone was going to know. Um, why would they have a carving like that in the church? I don't know. Um, but as you're probably aware, in um, I'm trying to think which miracle play it is. I think it's in Bunan's Meriasic. In Bunan's Meriasic, they talk about the dual nature of Christ uh, being both God and man in just the same way as a mermaid is at the same time both a human and fish. Um, and they that's an and that's this is in a, a late medieval mystery play in the Cornish language so we're talking about people in the time in late medieval times in Cornish speaking West Cornwall uh, they know about mermaids down there they still that piece of mythology exists so therefore the stories about mermaids exist they exist in the Cornish language we don't have any surviving now because uh, the uh, the only Cornish language folktale that survives is uh, the three advices, Yao and Shy and Hawth, but uh, that's uh, as I say, it's another tale. So yes, it is quite possible that the tale uh, predated the carving. It's quite possible that the carving, um, which is probably 15th century, though no, I don't think anyone's ever carbon dated it. It's probably a 15th century carving because that's the time when most uh, elaborate Cornish bench ends got written. It was probably put there because of, uh, to illustrate the point that was made in Bunan's Meriasek of the dual nature of uh, Christ uh, and the analogue being the dual nature of the mermaid. To me, regardless of whether the story or the carving came first, it seems that this could be a tale that's been around for a long time perhaps retold by storytellers over the centuries, with little variations and embellishments along the way. One thing that's really stuck out for me, and that I genuinely hadn't considered, because it's so easy to get lost in the romance and the mythology behind tales of mermaids, and to go seeking some really profound purpose behind them. But in fact, the meaning behind these stories could be quite a simple one. How do you go about explaining why friends and loved ones go away to sea and don't return? And say you're a very small fishing community, how do you go about coming to terms with that? To me, there's definitely something comforting in the idea that they've gone to live happily ever after beneath the waves with a beautiful mermaid.
Our next story takes us further south. In fact, to the most southerly point of mainland Britain, on the Lizard Peninsula. It's a tale that's often called Lutie and the Mermaid, but Bottrell refers to it in his chapter entitled The Mermaid and the Man of Curie, and simply calls it The Droll of the Mermaid. This appears to be another very old tale, and part of this droll-telling tradition, and there's a link here to a real individual. I mentioned earlier that Mike O'Connor's book is told from the perspective of a wandering droll-teller. Well, the name of that storyteller was Anthony James. We think that James was born in or somewhere near Curie in the 1760s, and that he served some time abroad as a soldier. Unfortunately, it seems that at some point in the 1790s, he was somehow blinded and was sent back home. We're told that as a military pensioner, he was able to stay at the barracks in Plymouth for the winter, but in the summer months, he set off around Cornwall as a travelling droll-teller. Bottrell refers to him as Uncle Antony, and that he would relate many old tales of ghosts and witchcraft, along with stories about the old families of the district, and that he and his boy would also sing the old ballads to the accompaniment of what he calls the droll-teller's crowd, which is basically a fiddle. He goes on to say, and I quote, Among all the favourite legends related by this humble relic of our old bards, none were oftener told, or more varied in the telling, by adding to the story whatever struck his fancy at the moment, than the following droll of the mermaid. Many centuries ago, there lived a man, down near the Lizard Point, whose name was Luti. He managed to make a living by farming a few acres not far from the seashore, and by turning his hand to fishing and the odd bit of smuggling, as the need required. One fine evening, Luti had just finished his work for the day and was walking along the seashore, when he heard a sudden wailing sound, a cry like that of a woman in distress, which seemed to come from over near the rocks at the far side of the beach. Now, typically, these rocks were covered by the sea at high water, but at this moment of low tide, the sea was now a long way off. Clambering over the rocks, Luti was taken aback when he saw before him the most beautiful woman he had ever seen. Her long golden hair, which fell about her shoulders, shone like the sun, and her skin was as pale and delicate as that of a polished seashell. He observed that only the top half of the woman was visible, her lower body being completely entangled in a mass of seaweed. Upon seeing him, the young woman screamed, and it was only then that Luti observed the fan of a fish's tail shaking and flapping amongst the seaweed, and he realised then she must be a mermaid. He had never seen one before, though he had heard their singing on moonlit nights. Luti assured her that he meant no harm, and asked how he might be able to help. "'What shall I do for he?' he asked. "'Speak but the word or give me a sign. I don't know if you know our Cornish tongue.' "'Oh, unlucky mermaid that I am,' she said. "'I ought to know when the tide leaves every rock on the coast. Yet I was so stupid as to remain here, looking at myself in the pool and combing my hair.' without noticing that the sea had gone out so far as to leave a bar of dry sand between me and the waves. Lutie tried to comfort her, 
I'll bear you company till the tide comes back in, when you may swim back home at your ease. But the mermaid became distressed. Her husband was at home asleep and would expect her back. She needed to bring some fish for supper, and then there were all her little ones who needed looking after. She feared that if her husband woke and realised she was not back, and that there was no supper, he would fall into a rage and gobble up all their children. She told him that her name was Morvena, which, in the human tongue, meant sea woman, and how she wished she might have two legs, just as he did, to be able to wander and explore the land, a place full of strange and beautiful creatures that she had often viewed from the waves. If you will but serve me now, for ten minutes only, by taking me over the sands to the sea, I'll grant to you and yours any three wishes you may desire. Take this, she said, as a token of my good faith, and with that she handed him her beautiful golden comb. Whenever you wish me to direct you, in any difficulty, you have only to pass that comb through the sea three times, calling me as often, and I'll come to you on the next flood tide. And so Luti, being a strong fellow, took the mermaid in his arms and carried her across the sands. Tell me, she said, for what three things do you wish? Will you have long life, strength and riches? Luti thought for a moment and replied, No, I only wish for the power to do good to my neighbours. First, that I might be able to break the spells of witchcraft. Secondly, that I may have such powers over familiar spirits as to compel them to inform me of all I desire to know for the benefit of others. Thirdly, that these good gifts may continue in my family forever. True to her word, the mermaid promised that he and his kin would always possess these powers. Now, it's at this point that the story takes a slightly darker turn. As they crossed the sand, the mermaid told him of all the wonders that lay beneath the sea, and how perfect was life below the waves. Come with me, love, she said, and see the beauty of the mermaid's dwellings. That all sounded very fine to Luti, but his mind turned instead to the thought of sunken treasures that might lie on the seabed. I'd rather find a few puncheons of rum that must often come down to you in the holds of sunken ships. Yes, said the mermaid. It would do your heart good to see the casks of brandy, kegs of hollands, pipes of wine, and puncheons of rum. Now all this sounded wonderful to Luti. But how was he to get to all this sunken treasure? Surely he would drown in the water. But the mermaid promised she would work wonders and allow him to breathe beneath the waves, and he might return to the land with as much treasure as he desired. So charmed was he by her beauty and by the music of her voice that he was inclined to plunge with her into the waves. But just at that moment, Luti's dog which had followed at some distance behind, unnoticed, suddenly began to bark and howl so loud that all at once he broke free from the mermaid's enchantment. Lord, deliver me from this devil of a fish, he cried, reaching for his knife. The mermaid leapt from his arms and swam away, singing out to him as she went, Farewell, my love, 
for nine long years, then I'll come for thee. Although he had parted from the mermaid in such an ungraceful way, she was true to her promise, and soon Luti became well known for his gifts as a Pella or white witch. Yet there was a price to be paid for these gifts, and sure enough, exactly nine years later, Luti and a friend were out fishing one clear moonlit night, when the sea suddenly rose around the boat, and the waves crashed and roared all about them, and the mermaid appeared, beckoning to him from the raging foam. My hour is come, said Luti, and with that he plunged into the sea, swam with the mermaid a while, and then sank with her beneath the waves, never to be seen again. Bottrell finishes his version of the story by adding, and I quote, Luti's body was never found, and, in spite of every precaution, once in nine years, some of his descendants find a grave in the sea. End quote. There's quite a few things going on in this story. Something that's elaborated on is this idea that there were at one time people around that area who were deemed to be skilled cunning folk or white witches. Bottrell writes, From a period more remote than is now remembered to the present time, some members of the family called Luti, who for the most part resided in the parish of Curie or its vicinity, have been noted conjurers or white witches. They have been known all over the West as the Pella family. He goes on to say, The word Pella is probably an abridgment of repeller, derived from their reputed power in counteracting the malign influences of sorcery and witchcraft. End quote. So, could there be something in it? I asked Mike about his thoughts on the story, and the idea of the mermaid's gift, and was there perhaps a real Luti? Undoubtedly, um... Uh, Luti's uh, family uh, had a reputation for being healers, white witches, whatever, wise wise men and wise women, um, and um, that must have come from somewhere. So in a way, the story of Luti and the mermaid explains that away, and that's not at all uncommon. Uh, there is a Welsh tale uh, that's sometimes called the Physicians of Motherwy, and it concerns a, a shepherd who falls in love with a, a beautiful maiden that comes out of a lake, Llynivan Vach, uh, which is on the Brecon Beacons. But the descendants of this man go on to be great uh, healers and physicians and uh, local people will tell you that that's where a tradition of healing uh, arose in that part of uh, southwest Wales. So that's really quite analogous to the, the Luti bit. Um, and people can quite uh, justifiably say, well, I wonder if the two tales are connected. Did a storyteller from Cornwall influence somebody in Wales or the other way around? Uh, and the answer is you, you never know. Um, it, it's, uh, it is more likely that there were, uh, that Luti's family were indeed uh, hedge witches or uh, you know, white witches that uh, worked in the community because that was 
that was the way that it worked before we had real doctors and things like that. You know, there's um, the the ladies, the witches of Tresco, which sometimes are put. Uh, portrayed as being sort of you know standard issued witches with broomsticks and all that sort of rubbish um, actually what they were were a terrific uh, group of physicians healers vets midwives all those sorts of things um, and they knew about folk remedies that sort of a thing and I think that what you've got in many communities. I mean, Bottrell has several stories that involve white witches, doesn't he? Uh, and so I think these, you know, before you get to the sort of the evolution of surgery, really, in the 19th century, these people are central to the community. They're very important. They're vital to the community. They're a little bit scary for the community because the community doesn't understand where they got their knowledge from. It, it's a bit like us being wary of uh, what an expert says on the TV or on the internet or something like that, because it's completely beyond our experience, you know. And that's how conspiracy theories arise. And you could you could argue that the tales of witches flying around on broomsticks and things, that's the that's the conspiracy theory of the seventeenth um, century. Uh, that's the that's the equivalent of suggesting that um, well you could name actually any 21st century uh, conspiracy theory and that that's the equivalent of it um, I think that Lutian the mermaid does two things it explains away the skills of generations of that family and it explains away uh, loss at sea once again you have a uh, a gentleman who's lost at sea and we shouldn't mourn he has gone to the arms of his mermaid lover and so we should take some consolation from that so those are the sorts of seeds that are there was there a real looty um, there certainly have been many Cornishmen lost at sea haven't there and so in a way yes I'm sure there certainly was a real looty. So, two things to take away from this story then, I think. That it's perhaps a way of explaining why a local family might have been seen to possess certain gifts as white witches or folk healers. An origin story, if you like. I've had a look through some of the parish records, and across the 18th and 19th centuries, there were many people with the surname Luti or Lutty across Cornwall, more often around St Just, Penzance and Madron areas, but that doesn't mean to say they weren't around the area of Curie. It's quite possible. And again, the mermaid story itself takes us back to this idea of loss, of losing loved ones to the sea. We then moved on to talk about the depiction of mermaids themselves in these stories and the idea of the morality behind it. Do you think that um, sometimes these tales, uh, especially where they are mermaids are represented as less benign, do you think there's sometimes an element of, uh, particularly when we get to sort of um, religious aspect of this, of, of mermaids re representing sin or temptation or lust or that kind of thing? Because sometimes they're sort of portrayed a bit like the sirens, as in they're like kind of luring you 
in some way. Do you think there's ever um, that was ever a thing as well as a sort of cautionary tale? I think that's a good point to make. Um, it, it, I think that in general terms, um, there is a morality associated with it. it it's easy. It's very tempting to say, oh, it was some miserable Christians in the 16th century uh, 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 took all these nice stories and, and made them moral. Um, uh, and uh, that may have been the case. But actually, uh, I think the morality associated with such tales is actually older and probably more reality-based. Um, if you treat a mermaid badly, then you're going to suffer from it. Um, it's really a question of do as you would be done by, isn't it, you know? And um, so the, the, the tale of uh, the doom bar in Padstow, um, it, it explains away why there is a doom bar. So it, it, it is an etiological tale, but also at the same time, it's telling you not to behave like the protagonist in that one who went and shot the mermaid, which is a, a very silly thing to do, isn't it? I mean, you and I, because we're folk people, we know that shooting mermaids is going to bound to end in disaster. <laughs> uh, and uh, but but of course, the character in the story is not uh, not that educated, and so um, it's a lesson for us, isn't it? Um, so it's it I. I of course, stories do have morals pasted onto them, and um, stories. Uh, if you read um, Perrault's uh, fairy tales, uh, 18th century French, um, then really quite boringly, at the end of each tale, it says, "And the moral of this story is that you shouldn't do this or you should do that." Um, and in many editions of Aesop's Fables. It's just the same. Uh, someone feels it necessary to actually print uh, what the moral is at the bottom. Uh, Aesop would have been very happy for the tale to have stood on its own. Um, in the same way, I mean, having said all that, I mean, we are told that Jesus uh, constantly had to explain his parables to the disciples because they didn't understand what was being told to them. Now, that itself may be just a storytelling device so that we then get explained uh, the moral of the story. You know, you, you should be like the Good Samaritan, not like the person who walked past on the other side of the road, that sort of a thing. Uh, they, they are obviously tales in a religious context or it's in a moral context but um, in a way they are no different from your mermaid story that says you look after your mermaid and your mermaid will look after you. We've looked there at a few different legends and mermaid folklore from across Cornwall. I love these stories not only because they involve fantastical creatures it's their relationships and interactions with people that I enjoy, along with them having a real sense of place. Why a village is the way it is, why the landscape looks the way it does. There can be a simple morality behind the tale. Treat others as you would wish to be treated yourself, for example. But also, perhaps, to have a respect for the sea. And perhaps these stories serve to give us some form of comfort when we lose someone in our community. I think we can all enjoy the magic in these tales as well. The idea that there might be these 
beautiful creatures who are part human, part fish, who inhabit magical lands and lost cities of untold riches beneath the sea, creatures who can charm us and tempt us, who have the power to grant our wishes, protect us from the perils of the sea, but who can also be vengeful and can call upon the power of the elements if we don't treat them with the respect they deserve. Sometimes it's nice to escape the modern world for a little while and to remind ourselves of these stories and these traditions and perhaps to wonder what it might be like. What if there were such wonderful creatures out there beneath the waves? Thanks for listening. I'd like to thank Mike O'Connor for all his help with this episode and I recommend checking out his book Cornish Folk Tales as well as Anna Chalton's book Cornish Folk Tales of Place along with William Bottrell's Traditions and Hearthside Stories of West Cornwall all of which you can find in the reading list for this series. The Pisky Trap is hosted by me, Keith Wallace with music by Elizabeth Westcott an original artwork by Caris Harrington. There'll be another episode coming soon. In the meantime, if you're enjoying this series so far, you can find The Pisky Trap on Twitter, Instagram and Facebook. So give us a like or feel free to get in touch. <laughs>